a year or so ago, around Christmas, I want to say, I was invited to a dinner with some friends. I arrived with a few people around 7 p.m., and as everyone was getting settled, there were warm welcomes, laughs, and talks that all around cultivated a hospitable home. Shortly after the greetings and conversations concluded, everyone sat down to enjoy a home-cooked meal. Spending time with people you hold in a high regard produces this euphoric feeling. At one point during the meal, someone brought up a political issue regarding the vaccine. The host and a few others were in strong agreement of something that I and some others were not. But instead of voicing my disagreement, entering into debate, and possibly ruining the dinner party, I decided to just continue to enjoy the wonderful meal. Then a moment of silence fell over the dinner party. Shortly after, the conversation switched, and more people began to speak. But in that brief moment of silence, there was something rather profound that occurred. Once the echo chamber of opinions began to subside, and silence took the stage, it was apparent that the previous opinions voiced did not accurately portray a full consensus of the room. But it was not by any verbal communication or facial expression, but rather by the lack of. The lack of agreement. The lack of acknowledgement of the previous points made. And when that realization did take place, it was almost as if a debate did happen, but without any dialogue and the emotions that would surely ensue. It was the protest to engage in the topic that served to be the debate. And what that silence said was, I don't agree. Contemplating that night and that mode of disagreement for quite some time, I saw that its application had more utility than just dinner parties. I saw its place in everyday life, whether it be on Twitter or in a simple conversation with someone. Regarding the former, one can weigh the amount of tweets and debate that stem from an account reposting a video of a person speaking controversially and sometimes simply making nonsensical remarks, which is more often than not. Yet, those remarks attain grandiose amounts of attention from the large accounts who apply with other disagreement. But what would happen if those people and their accounts did not engage in the topic they found to be outrageous? Well, one, the reach of the content question would be stunted, decreasing its virality. And that outrage would lose a good portion of its legitimacy. Take academia, for example. An extensive peer-reviewed study with certain critiques is much more trustworthy and legitimate in discourse than one without. To contextualize this, let's look at Cardi B and her hit single, WAP. For the audience, you can look up the acronym, but that song drew major attention from conservative outlets, pundits, commentators, and anyone else who seemed to have influence and disagreed with, say, the messaging of the song. But let's take it for what it really was. Just a song. A mediocre song. But it was the reaction to it that made people almost pick sides. Because if the people who were, say, disagreeing with the messaging of the song and the lyrics, then if you don't agree with those people and their disagreements of the song, then you found yourself to be on the opposite side and vice versa. So it put people in camps. It did much more 
than just say, hey, I don't agree with this song or this song I find to be inappropriate, say. But what if the song just existed without any comment from these different outlets and people that disagree with it? It probably would have been like most mediocre songs, faded in a couple months. That's not what happened. And there's a reason why I remember it. And there's a reason why everyone listening to this probably remembers it too. Because of the reaction. The reaction was so disproportionate to the song that it gained this status. Which would have never happened without that reaction. But to tie in the latter, imagine you're conversating with an acquaintance or a friend. And they begin to make quite outlandish remarks. Remarks that you find irritable, that you don't agree with. You say, don't voice those disagreements. Use that silence because you find it's not worth it. It's not the place. It's not the right time. It is what it is. Then, my next impulse personally would be to tell a friend. This just happened to me. I heard some remarks from a friend that I found to be quite irritable. And my next impulse was to tell a friend that I thought would agree with me. After contemplating that, I thought, what would that do? All it really would do is extend that person's reach, extend that person's message to an audience that otherwise wouldn't have heard it. And what's the point of that? To air out and receive validation from something that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things? And this is much more easier than done, as just confessed and admitted that I was about to make the same mistake a couple days ago. But it plays to the point of maintaining that silence and not extending a person's message that you find to be outlandish. There are many caveats to this, but the message holds true. Let the nonsense die in that moment. One of my favorite authors is Robert Greene, who has written a number of bestsellers, most notably The 48 Laws of Power. I'm currently reading his 33 Strategies of War, this one chapter excerpt involving Franklin Delano Roosevelt encapsulates the power of silence beautifully, which I'll now directly read from. Jiu-Jitsu. In 1920, the Democratic Party nominated Ohio Governor James Cox as its candidate to succeed the retiring president, Rojo Wilson. At the same time, it named 38-year-old Franklin Delano Roosevelt as its vice presidential nominee. Roosevelt had served as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Wilson. More important, he was the cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, still very popular after his presidency in the first decade of the century. The Republican nominee was Warren G. Harding, and the campaign was a grueling affair. The Republicans had a lot of money, they avoided talking about the issues, and played up Harding's folksy image. Cox and Roosevelt responded to the Republicans by going on a vigorous offensive, basing their campaign on a single issue of Wilson's, American participation in the League of Nations, which they hoped would bring peace and prosperity. Roosevelt campaigned all over the country, delivering speech after speech. The idea was to counter the Republicans' money with sheer effort. But the race was a disaster. Harding won the presidency and one of the biggest landslides in American electoral history. The following year, Roosevelt was stricken with polio and lost the use of his legs. Coming just after the disastrous 1920 campaign, his illness marked a turning point in his life. Suddenly made aware of his physical fragility and mortality, he retreated into himself and reassessed. The world of politics was vicious and violent. 
To win an election, people would do anything, stooping through all kinds of personal attacks. The public official moving this world was under pressure to be as unscrupulous as everyone else and survive as best he could. But that approach did not suit Roosevelt personally and took too much out of him physically. He decided to craft a different political style, one that would separate him from the crowd and give him a constant advantage. In 1932, after a stint as governor of New York, Roosevelt ran as the Democratic presidential nominee against the Republican incumbent, Herbert Hoover. The country was in the midst of the Depression, and Hoover seemed incapable of dealing with it. Given the weakness of his record, a defensive hand was a difficult one for him to play, and, like the Democrats in 1920, he went vigorously on the offensive, attacking Roosevelt as a socialist. Roosevelt, in turn, traveled the country, speaking on his ideas for getting America out of the Depression. He didn't give many specifics, nor did he respond to Hoover's attacks directly, but he radiated confidence and ability. Hoover, meanwhile, seemed shrill and aggressive. The Depression probably would have doomed him to defeat for whatever he did, but he lost far bigger than expected. The size of Roosevelt's victory, nearly electoral sweep, surprised one and all. In the weeks following the election, Roosevelt essentially hid from public view. Slowly, his enemies on the right began to use his absence to attack him, circling speculation that he was unprepared for the challenge of the job. The criticisms became pointed and aggressive. At his inauguration, however, Roosevelt gave a rousing speech, and in his first months in office, now known as the 100 Days, he switched from the appearance of inactivity to a powerful offensive, hurrying through legislation that made the country feel as if something were finally being done. The snipping died. Over the next few years, this pattern repeatedly reoccurred. Roosevelt would face resistance, the Supreme Court say would overturn his programs, and enemies on all sides, Senator Huey Long and labor leader John L. Lewis on the left, Father Charles Coughlin and wealthy businessmen on the right, would launch hostile campaigns in the press. Roosevelt would retreat, ceding the spotlight. In his absence, the attacks would seem to pick up steam, and his advisors would panic. But Roosevelt was just biding time. Eventually, he knew people would tire of these endless attacks and accusations, particularly because, by refusing to reply to them, he made them inevitably one-sided. Then, usually a month or two before election time, he would go on the offensive, defending his record and attacking his opponents subtly and vigorously enough to catch them all off guard. The timing would also jolt the public, winning him their attention. In the periods when Roosevelt was silent, his opponent's attacks would grow and grow more shrill. But that only gave him material he could use later, taking advantage of their hysteria to make them ridiculous. The most famous example of this came in 1944, when that year's Republican presidential nominee, Thomas Dewey, launched a series of personal attacks on Roosevelt, questioning the activities of his wife, his sons, and even his dog, the Scotch Terrier, Fala, whom Dewey accused of being pampered at the taxpayer's expense. Roosevelt countered in a campaign speech. Quote, the Republican leaders have not been content to make personal attacks upon me or my sons. They now include my little dog, Fala. Unlike the members of my family, Fala resents us. When he learned that the Republican fiction writers had concocted a story that left him behind on Aleutian Island and had sent a destroyer back to find him at a cost to the taxpayer of two or three or eight or twenty million dollars, his Scotch soul was furious. 
He has not been the same dog since. I am accustomed to hearing malicious falsehoods about myself, but I think I have the right to object to libelous statements about my dog, unquote. This book provides a number of guidelines and mythologies that you can take advantage of in your personal life and use to your benefit. And as Roosevelt positioned himself, let your opponent be the fool. Ignore nonsensical remarks and watch as emotions overcome their faculties as you pursue what is meaningful and purposeful. A fool is known by their speech, a wise man by silence. Pythagoras.